Lesia Dubianka is a political scientist and a Lund University European Affairs graduate with eight years' experience in political and social journalism. In August 2018, she entered the Ukrainian NGO sector and currently works for well-known Ukrainian NGO, Europe Without Borders. Now, this is the second time I'm delighted to welcome her onto the channel. And in this episode, we're going to be following up on the story unfolding in the last couple of days of the approval, the unexpected approval of the accession process beginning for Ukraine to the EU. Ilyasia, I'm delighted to welcome you back to the channel. Uh, last time we had a fiery, passionate and hugely insightful conversation, which went down hugely well with the audience. Um, and I know you have an incredibly uh, so loyal uh, and engaged following on Twitter. So hopefully this video will get a lot of uh, attention. Well, let's start with the main topic. And this is the Ukrainian accession to the EU. And I know you uh, really have been following this closely. Um, did you expect that vote to pass? be honest no so this was like really unexpected because everyone all the political um political journalists they were sort of saying thinking that it will probably not happen during this summit because well we all know why i guess right but <laughs> if if you don't his name is victor and uh, the thing is that um, before the summit, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, made it clear that he's going to block the decision, that he's not going to vote uh, to give the green light to the accession. So this was quite unexpected. And well, what can I say? I'm pretty delighted that it happened. Well, not pretty. I'm like super delighted that it happened, but it's still like I'm kind of recovering from shock here a little bit because when I saw it yesterday, I was like, how did this even happen knowing uh, what's going on? Well, um, apparently the rumor has it that it happened thanks to Olaf Scholz, surprisingly, because, you know, Ukraine isn't such a big fan of Olaf Scholz, but sometimes I guess he can get things done. And that's very cool. Thank you uh, for that. And apparently he suggested that Viktor Orban simply leaves the room during the vote. So it still makes it legally valid. It's fine. However, he was like, you know, he was trying to guess kill two birds with one stone or something um, by saying that, okay, I didn't participate in that vote so that he can come uh, back to his whatever MPs in Budapest and say that, like, no, I didn't vote for this or, you know, uh, talk to Putin about this, that, you know, I, I didn't vote for this. I, I don't know how, um, you know, how he basically... Um, tells Putin about what he does, but I'm sure that he does. And, uh, you know, so I was very, very impressed by what happened yesterday. And even more so because I remember when I did my internship in Brussels, that was like already seven years ago. And it was before the visa waiver was introduced. So like, you know, uh, and I remember the diplomats and the way Ukraine was treated back then in the EU, um, even after the, um, the the revolution of dignity, it was still like, like one diplomat said that, um, I like he was like, I, I don't know, it was probably what, 20, like late 2016, early 2017. He said, I was walking down the corridor and I heard 
someone say uh, among the Eurocrats that, oh, no, no, it's a, Eurocra it's a Ukrainian delegation. Let's run. Let's run. <laughs> it's like, you know, they were not super happy about interacting with us or, um, you know, giving us any promises. And the visa waiver was very cumbersome, the introduction. So, you know, a lot changed. Um, unfortunately, it changed because of the full-scale war, let's be honest. And this was the period of Minsk 1, Minsk 2. I'm not even sure if there was a Minsk 3 as well. And at this point, a lot of European powers, particularly Germany and France, were staking their reputations on this so-called diplomatic process, uh, which to you and I think we can label it appeasement of the Russian bear. Um, that now, of course, is past. And everything that Ukraine said that might have been labeled suspect, biased, emotional, you know, you'll have heard all of these labels. Ukraine has been proved right. The Baltics have been proved right. Those states that have been telling Western Europe what Russia was like and what it was going to do have been proved correct. Well, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, probably the European leaders, it's not just because of uh, money, not just because of that. I don't think so. I think that a lot of times it, it happened, all this appeasement happened, just because they wanted to believe that Russia isn't as bad as it is. It's pretty difficult to kind of acknowledge it, you know? I mean, to this day, even I think to myself from time to time, is Russia really that bad? Like, you know, the Russian people and stuff. I, I do ask myself these questions because it's just it's just difficult to say out loud that, oh my God, there is this neighbor, it's huge. They're huge, like they have this enormous chunk of territory and that they're so damn evil. I mean, <laughs> it's it's difficult for anybody out there. So I understand why they were trying to do this. And plus, you also have to take into account that Ukraine back then, especially under uh, Petro Poroshenko, they didn't say, uh, they didn't declare war with Russia, right? They didn't say that this is like Russia's war against Ukraine. So it's kind of difficult for people to understand what's going on if you call it anti-terrorist uh, operation or whatever they called it at the beginning. Uh, they did. It was called uh, ATO. Uh, and, um, you know, it's... If you don't call things by their names, then this is the kind of result you get. So, uh, I mean, I understand that uh, back then Ukraine wasn't prepared militarily and, and stuff, but... Still, I mean, honestly, the world doesn't have the time to know why you are not prepared militarily. Uh, you know, Ukraine has to also kind of take responsibility for not being prepared, for um, embezzling that domain for many years, for uh, corruption in that domain. So, you know, right now it's obviously a different story. However, um, still like we need to ramp up this production of everything right ammo uh weapons it's not like russian weapons are that sophisticated from what i understood uh they're just using some sort of soviet models that we also have access to and uh, upgrading them but they don't possess any like uh technology that is akin to iron dome that's a different story, right? And um, 
so if that's the case, then why can't we ramp up the production too and not just rely on Western allies all the time? Because yes, sentiment changes, unfortunately, sometimes for worse, sometimes for better. But the key thing here is that you always need to be prepared yourself and not rely on others. Let's turn back to Orban. I think that's an incredibly uh, powerful point. And from what I read and hear, some of this is actually going on. Uh, for instance, the conversion of the Antonov production works to high-tech drone uh, manufacture. Um, it's about, obviously, smart technologies, but also about scale of production. And I think there are interesting signs that that is happening. It is also happening, it has to be said, in, 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 uh, in Moscow. And... Uh, the tech sector that really failed to take off under the incredibly nepotistic and corrupt system. Finally, they seem to be getting their act together, unfortunately, on some of the technological fronts and on electronic warfare. Uh, so we need to keep an eye on that. Let's turn back to Orban, though, because this vote and him agreeing to be sort of shuffled out of the room didn't happen in a vacuum. The EU threw a vast amount of money at him the day before this vote, billions upon billions of euros. So isn't this a kind of, uh, you know, we call this like a Dane girls. This is, this is like paying off the guy who is terrorizing you and obstructing things. Uh, you know, are we going to pay him off? Or I say we, I'm Britain, we're not part of the EU. Is the EU going to pay off Orban prior to every vote? And the accession process has, I believe, 27 stages and he can block every single one of those stages because of the unanimous voting system that's currently in place. Well, I think that actually 10 billion that he received wasn't what he was after. He was after 30 billion. And so probably that's why he was like, you know, still not wanting to vote during that specific vote, right, on Ukraine and Moldova. So it's like, you know, I was actually thinking, um, what if we were to make a remake? You know, that movie being John Malkovich, right? And we can make it like being Victor Orban, and it's about a man who is highly unpopular, arrogant, and, you know, he writes poison pen letters to Brussels, blackmailing everyone. So this is basically the plot. You can also call it the life of uh, Victor, uh, you know, like life of Brian, life of Victor. Unfortunately, it is like a this dramedy or maybe a mockumentary. And you're just like looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, how is this even possible? But this is because EU treaties are not fully, um, you know, they were made probably back in the day when people didn't assume that such a thing would happen in the first place, you know? But uh, being a good legislator uh, also involves, uh, or entails rather, the ability to predict such situations. And um, what I see right now is that obviously there must be a procedure of some kind when the EU says like, okay, you, violated this, this, and this on a recurring basis, right? Get out. You know, we're, we're just kicking you out. You can reapply later. But right now, no, that's enough. Because Victor is, uh, he's just taking advantage of these loopholes. 
And obviously he can try and block, but I think it gets difficult at some point. Even right now, it got difficult. Yeah, he did block the aid, 50 billion to Ukraine for now, right? So it's going to be postponed, but he won't be able to do it forever. Even it's like, it's a huge, it's like, we, we have to understand that it's, that it requires a lot of energy to do that, to go around town telling, <laughs> yeah, telling everyone that I'm going to veto and I'm not going to do this and, uh, you know, having fights with everyone. I don't think that a person can do it forever. At some point, you will have to stop or they will tell you to stop and they will use a procedure like they used yesterday by just saying that, like, you're not happy, leave, have a coffee instead. And that's and, it. Yeah. yeah. And 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 that was pretty easy, right? So um, and there will be more. I'm pretty sure that there will be more acts like that in order for him to understand that he can't block all the time demanding more money and more money and more money and more. It's like it's not going to happen. So I'm pretty sure that he understands that too. And that right now, obviously, he needs to come back to Budapest or call the Kremlin and say that I did this and that, like, are you happy enough? Uh, but in the long term, no, it's not really a very good strategy. So I'm pretty sure that he'll he'll come down at some point, especially since um, from what I know, NATO has already created because NATO like the EU has this consensus uh, mechanism. And uh, NATO has already created some sort of special procedure in May that allows to circumvent his veto. So, you know, if you are this arrogant, toxic blackmailer, then this is what you get. And, and you, you'll get like super served and that will be the end of it at some point. So, um, but still he's happy right now because he at least managed to block the money. He's not going to get any of it anyway, but at least he managed. So, like, you know. <laughs> I said that movie, that Life of Victor, is definitely yeah. not a movie that I'd uh, want to see. And you can see I the line. I would love to see you know. it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not the saver of Europe. You're not the Messiah. You're just a nasty little toad. Yes. <laughs> um, so he's also blocking other legislation with Europe. So it's not just uh, legislation and aid in relation to Ukraine. He's blocking various budget ratification processes. He's gumming up the whole system. Now, my understanding is that Hungary cannot just be kicked out of the EU. Uh, it would have to do a sort of Brexit process where it's voted for in the parliament. But apparently there is a procedure. I think it's called Article 7 where if a country diverges from uh, the core values, democratic values, institutions and processes of the EU, um, then that country, uh, their voting power, their veto power could be suspended. Do you think with Chancellor Schultz apparently growing a pair, um, this may now be on the table, whereas previously it wouldn't be considered? I think yes, and, and you know why? It's just because uh, Victor is so toxic. You know, it's it's just because of that. It's because of he <laughs> his idiosyncratic personality, and uh, I'm pretty sure that this actually could be a way out at the end. Like it's it's like the possibility is pretty high, because you know, like when you actually 
think it's okay to write poison pen letters to Sean Michel, blackmailing him. It's wow, like who are you? Like literally, who are you? No offense, but Hungary is a small state which has very little significance. I don't want to be Henry Kissinger here, but you know, it, it still has very little significance. It's okay for it to be a sovereign country uh, with its own agenda, but come on, be a little bit realistic as to who you are and uh, what you represent. And, um, you know, I'm, I think that just because of that toxic personality and, uh, you know, very modest significance in terms of what it contributes to the EU, this could be the way out because everyone is extremely tired. The fatigue is enormous. You know, people are just writing very bad things about him, but, you know, there's a reason why they're doing that. So, um, yeah. The short answer is yeah. And exhaustion tiredness is is also the topic that really has been dominating uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, of course, Russia is going to amplify that and use that to try and uh, you know engender um, despair and uh, dropping of support for Ukraine. We see some of that working with agents, assets, and useful idiots in, for instance, Congress in the U.S. Um, blocking uh, the aid package to Ukraine. At the same time, the language of Biden and uh, Sullivan are getting a little bit sharper, a little clearer focused. Fortunately, at last, it's taken two years. Um, the question here, though, is, is this also sinking into Europe now? Do we understand or are we starting to understand? And by Europe, I mean the broader Europe, including the UK, that if America uh tapers down its support for Ukraine, or if there's a temporary cessation of that, Europe is going to have to step in. Otherwise, the consequences, which all Ukrainians understand implicitly, is dire. Do you think Europeans understand it's time to step up? Do you think they understand what the consequences of a so-called Russian victory would be for Europe? Well, I mean, Russian victory, in which sense like taking the occupied territories, they're already occupied territories. Uh, well, look, the thing is uh, that um, it's just like, you know, defining Ukrainian victory and defining Russian victory. Uh, it's like, okay, Ukrainian victory is probably taking the entire country back, right? Russian victory is uh, taking the entire Ukraine. Um, that's the only victory that they want. Uh, how feasible is that? Probably not. It's not very feasible. <laughs> it's not very feasible. They understand that. And that what makes them mad. Because even right now, even though we are completely outgunned, right, still, and we don't have the kind of things they have, there's still, like, you know, fighting near Avdivka, some kind of tactical fighting, so on, so forth. Like, mm, okay, well... No, it's not going to happen. But the thing is that naturally the U.S. has a problem once again. It's called isolationism, right? So they are still, they still haven't understood. So, I mean, look, the U.S. has become this global superpower not that long ago, let's be honest, after World War II, more or less. Before that, it was something, I don't know, in between, 
So I guess, and I think that some people still haven't realized because they maybe forgot too, you know, because like <laughs> your memory is short, that we're living in the current, like uh, the current world setup as such, the global setup, democracies of human rights and everything has been around for something like 80 years at max. Before that, people lived in dictatorships, absolute monarchies, which is often the same, or, okay, constitutional monarchies, but still with very limited rights. It's it's not something you take for granted, but I think people are forgetting it. They think that this whole system has been around forever. <laughs> no, it's not even 100 years. And, um, and then 100 years is nothing in terms of humanity. Uh, and I think that people are starting to forget that. And in Congress, obviously, you have Mike Johnson at the moment, who is this, um, like, Christian. He is uh, an ardent Christian. He is clearly not a big fan of all these global things. He wants to focus on something very local, borders, um, church, things like that, like, the, the traditional, the traditional things that isolationists want to focus on. And, um, and then you have Trump. He's not exactly isolationist in my opinion, but I think that he's this guy because he has his business background. He views politics as some sort of business on a very grand scale that, you know, you, you pop to um, France, you make a deal there. You, you pop to Germany, you make a deal there. That is some sort of transactional politics when you invest a certain amount of money and you need to have a short-term return, like immediately, right? There is no long-term planning because long, like businesses don't like long-term stuff. They like short-term stuff. And this is exactly the train of thought he has. And this is what he even said, like, right, regarding the war at the beginning, I said he would have sold it on the spot, like that, like that. <laughs> Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? He would have offered something and something that Putin uh, would have accepted and so on, which is obviously not true. Uh, but he thinks like this business guy who also has a thing for authoritarian leaders because he wants to be that too. He wants, he's a megalomaniac, so we have to take that into account. But yeah, um, because of these sentiments in the US and the fact that the Democratic Party is also, you know, you said that now they're using language, which is at least a little bit more clear. I also noticed that. However, why so late? That This is the, the, like the question. They could have used it a long time ago. They could have launched campaigns um, explaining how the aid is being spent much earlier. This is something that they could have done. They didn't do it because probably they didn't deem it necessary. What can I say? You know, they were busy with some other things. But um, the Democratic Party, which is obviously a little bit more global in this approach, um, except for Republican hawks, because they also exist, let's not forget, the Republican Party is very uneven these days. Uh, so there are Republican hawks like uh, Mitch Romney, right? And you have um, other people like Mitch McConnell. So you have like, uh, you have people who are still 
understanding what's going on out there and the role of the U.S. But you also have Mike Johnson, Donald Trump, uh, Matt Gates or whatever his name is, and uh, Marjorie something green. Ada <laughs> Green, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't even care what her name is. She's, uh, she's lunatic, and let's let's be honest. And um, you know, so you have these people too. The only question I have. Uh, you know, about the Democratic Party at the moment is how come, no offense, I, I mean, I have nothing against Biden, but he's 82, right? He's 82. Is there really no other person who can stand for election? It's it's like, you know, it's like as if the Democratic Party wants to lose the election, you know? it's It was the same with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was never popular. Why? Are you wanting her to stand for election? Okay, you you got served at the end. <laughs> it was like, a, I'm pretty sure that they, if they had a different candidate, uh, the Democrat Party would have won. Even it Bernie was, Sanders, you know, I mean, um, yeah, but that would have been a very good option. <laughs> yeah, maybe not better, but it, it depends on your point of view. But yeah, um, <laughs> certainly more genuine. I mean, I, I do, uh, after digging into a lot of what Hillary Clinton does and says, etc., it's very much the establishment candidate and um, tough on Russia, apparently. But it's really not clear, you know, how that might have panned out in reality when she was in office. Mm, I would say that she was just an, an unpopular individual let's be honest she was unpopular and uh you know you have to take these things into account you can't just push a candidate just because uh, he he uh, he or she is part of the establishment it doesn't work like that so you also need to factor in the popularity of this specific candidate and uh you know so the question is how come the us doesn't allow new people to become part of the establishment? That is a big question. And I'm sure that um, the Americans, they are also asking it because like, come on, you have an 82 year old guy <laughs> who clearly is tired. And, and that makes sense. When you're 82, you're tired. You just want to you know, read a book and stuff, not travel to Tel Aviv to talk about Hamas and things mm. like that. So, um, Hey, I'm in my fifties and I'm tired. You know, I yeah. want to sit down and read a book with a couple. I'm of tired guys. too. So no worries. Everyone's tired. <laughs> it's fine. No, but like you know, joking aside, uh, it it's it's a it's a serious question because it kind of also sends the wrong signal to uh, young Americans that you can't make it to the top at all. You need to like wait until you're. Uh, almost about to kick the bucket right and then you're, you'll make it to the top that that doesn't make any sense that's I a mean, bit like our monarchy yeah. isn't it really yes you know? yes and um in europe it's quite different so i mean if you take emmanuel macron or you take Zelensky, or you take uh many other like uh individuals uh around europe you'll see that they're they're much younger meloni and, uh, you know, everyone is much younger. So how come this is the case in the U.S.? I don't fully understand because that's completely makes you so like, you know, it reduces your engagement dramatically.
and and that is a very bad thing. So when it comes to stepping in and Europe stepping in, well, obviously, I think that Europe has actually done a lot, maybe even more than the US combined, because you have to take different uh, factors into account, not just the the weapons provided, but also like, you know, refugees accepted, um, different policies, aid. Yeah, it hasn't, I don't know, it hasn't donated uh, maybe uh, as many high mercies as, as the US, but it has done a lot too. And it can ramp up the production too. And I think that the general sentiment in the EU is indeed that you need to prepare. And plus there, like the other factor is that they're much closer to Russia. So they understand, they understand uh, the threat so uh, obviously, I think that Europe um, understands that very well, regardless of who's in power, Biden or Trump or someone else, maybe Nikki Haley, uh, right? Uh, but the fact is that, yeah, you farmers need to rely on yourself and they have the production. They have the production for that. Maybe the production base isn't as enormous in the U as in the U.S., but look, there are many countries uh, with good military um, factories, right? So in, in uh, Europe, so I'm pretty sure that that can be taken care of. Let's turn to another leader who has uh, outstayed his welcome by at least a decade, uh, and that is the... Um, toxic uh diminutive uh psychopath in the kremlin um i was i was actually thinking that you're about to talk about the belarusian cockroach the the potato ah. prince but I was, <laughs> okay yeah yeah i'll see no, it's either it's either, either tarakanos me it's uh -huh. one or the other isn't it you uh -huh. know, either the snake or the cockroach um yeah, both clearly have outstayed their welcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of course, is more of a puppet than uh, than a, a genuine, um, you know, uh, dictator of, of their country. Um, Putin, of course, announced uh, to no one's surprise that he'll be running again in the election. Mm -hmm. I think the only question was whether this was a double or not. And the <laughs> press conference uh, that rolled out yesterday, the four hour uh, sort of brown-nosing marathon of of, of um, total nonsense um, sort of proves that this is the real Putin. They wouldn't have put a double up. Um, but that's not so much the issue, is it? Um, over the last two years, many people, Ben Hodges, you and others, have been saying that Russia has not changed its ambition, its ambition to conquer Ukraine in its entirety, its ambition to erase Ukrainian identity. We've been saying this over and over and over and i think as we were talking about before we hit record western leaders for many decades have tried to convince themselves that russia is less toxic than it actually is finally finally are they starting to understand that just because russia does not have the means to conquer the whole of ukraine it doesn't mean that that ambition has in any way changed and putin's statements have made that absolutely clear in the last couple of days well obviously why would he change that he's obsessed it's like it's like it's a fetish if you're obsessed and it's your fetish and you have uh 
money. He still has money, right? He still has weapons. Why would he change that? So, you know, uh, again, he's not a young man. <laughs> There's nothing to lose, honestly. So why not? Why not keep trying? And uh, that that kind of makes sense to me. Why, why wouldn't it? So, um, and I think that everyone in the EU already realized it. Even the so-called former Freunde or some other <laughs> murky individuals, shady individuals, you know. Uh, I think that everyone has realized it, to be honest. And this is exactly why Europe is so keen on granting, uh, well, opening the negotiation accessions. Uh, the accession, oh my God, the, the negotiations with Ukraine, right? And um, because they understand that there must be something in order to uh, prevent future Russia from repeating this. So we don't know who's gonna end up on top. I mean, at, I mean, at some point, not obviously not in 2024, which uh, you know, I still am outraged by how Western media portrays it as though there is a, an election and he's going to stand for election. What's your problem? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> who's going to win? Like, it's such a yeah, mystery. Yeah, no, look, look, in the Soviet Union, they also had uh, public voting, right? They also had elections and the Communist Party always won. Surprise! <laughs> it had like 90 something percent of support. So um, if that's your indicator of uh, democracy, then something is really wrong in your head. And uh, it's presidential, so-called presidential election obviously is fake, it's sham. He already won. He's the next president once again, because he's a dictator, happens, right? And um, until he's dead, nothing will change. He will keep trying. The hope will always be there. And I'm pretty sure that even in his deathbed, he'll be like, well, what about Ukraine? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's a fetish. It's, it's just a fetish. You can't change it. It's an obsession. It's okay, because his advisor will come to him and say, Vladimir, Vladimir, it's okay. We won, you know. Uh, we took the whole of Ukraine, our flags yeah. in Kiev, and then they'll hopefully put a pillow over his head and, you know, I know. Uh, well, we can only hope, right? One can only hope. However, um, <laughs> yeah, at some point when he becomes, an, when he's not going to be like, you know, there anymore fully, um, he's not there already, but, you know, like uh, in terms of understanding the world at all, so you can like sell him whatever. Uh, and that and that day will also come, right? And then they can tell him that, yeah, Vladimir Putinich, we, we conquered Ukraine. Everything's fine. And we already conquered Poland, too. And it's like, I think that, you know, Poland, uh, I'm not sure that the Baltic states uh, play the same role as Poland in his worldview. I, I have this feeling because he really hates Poland. <laughs> Poland really hates him too. And, and it's like, you know, it's very mutual. And the point here is that, you know, he, after, obviously, after you, in his, in his world, after Ukraine, it has to be Poland, I think. And, and that's an interesting and Probably point. the Baltic states. But and then Poland, the Baltics are like, you know, it's just somewhere that they'd like to go on holiday. They're not that significant, according yeah. to him, at least, right? 
Poland is significant because it's a big country. It's <laughs> Russia always has, and um, you know it's it's just a personal fetish too. So, um, but it's not going to happen. So, I mean, uh, sure, he can keep trying and trying and trying and trying, but it's not it's just not going to happen. Uh, and this is why Poland's interesting. Hmm? Poland mm -hmm. gives cause for great hope, but also sometimes despair as well. So we saw the blockade on the border. And yeah. let's call things, as you said earlier, by their names. Um, this was not a mass protest by uh, mm -hmm. transport unions or truckers. And in vain, I read through much of the Western coverage, and none of this was put in context. The organizations, the so-called unions, that were ringleaders in these blockades represented far lower than 1% of the industry and none of the main unions. What they did represent was a bunch of far-right parties that have very clear connections to pro-Russian organizations and one must assume to the GRU. So let's label this for what it was. And this is was uh, a small number of workers manipulated by Kremlin agents. I mean, there's, there's no other label for it, I think, than that. Um, and what was frightening, of course, is that the transition period in the Polish government, the outgoing government, allowed this to happen with impunity, even though it was breaking EU law, breaking local law, breaking trade laws, and harming an ally uh, who is under genocidal assault. That, for me, is the is the scary bit that actually Russian hybrid grey zone operations can flourish on the territory of the EU. The opposite of that, of course, is the accession of Donald Tusk to the presidency. And now this blockade is starting to, you know, melt away uh, under, under his leadership. Hopefully he'll be tougher with that. And his language, there's been a huge change in the language, uh, Actually, this is the toughest language outside the Baltics that we've heard in Europe coming from Donald Tusk. He said he would lead the process of Europe rearming and standing up to Russia. We haven't heard language like this. And he also talks about Ukraine, victory, winning, and he talks about it in expansive terms, not in limited, vague terms. So what is your take on Poland as a, as a problem, but also as an ally? I wouldn't call Poland a problem. That would be a, a very, very bad uh, idea because it's not a problem. It's uh, one of the most, like the, one of the staunchest allies out there for very different reasons. Uh, the amount of people they took in and the way they facilitated uh, lives for these people um, in Poland. So, you know, getting a job or um, starting a business in Poland for a Ukrainian refugee is much easier than in many other countries. And uh, it, like countries like France or, uh, you know, Scandinavian states, it's like, you know, in Poland, it's easy peasy, lemon squeeze you, like literally. So uh, that's one aspect. And also like the, obviously all the help that they provided they do, however, have their own interests. And like any country out there, they have their own interests. So talking about the blockade, obviously it's not a very good decision, mildly put. But you also need to understand that there is, there is such a concern in Poland that what are they gonna do 
if they have so much competition and Ukrainians are um, posing a certain competition to them, right? What are they going to do? I mean, it was pretty much the same when Poland was, for example, acceding to the European Union. There were also like protests and blockades and whatnot. There was a lot going on. Right now it's going on in Poland because, well, you know, Everyone's a little bit afraid. And obviously the people you're talking about right now are probably indeed representing the far right parties because I also read that. Um, I didn't investigate the issue that much, but I do remember reading about it. And uh, yes, Russia can always try and carry out something like that in any European country. Even Poland isn't immune because a bunch of uh, whatever truck drivers decided to do that. However, you like, you know, the situation has ameliorated since. And um, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that it will keep repeating itself too often. I mean, sure, there will always be some protest. There will always be someone who's left out, who feels left out. Because the economy is difficult. The prices in Poland went up a lot during the years. During the years, and especially after the um, after the Russia launched the full scale war, they went up a lot. So some of the things had to be, like you know, they had to become tax exempt or something in order for them not to be super pricey. And uh, it's a problem when you are like you know your salary remains the same. You have a lot of bills. I understand that, and you don't know what you'll do next. Will you be completely unemployed or not you know i've been talking to different polish people and they love ukraine and stuff but they also say like but yeah but what about like what about my future too a little bit you know i have like a grand uh, i have like a mother who needs um some sort of uh, medical stuff going on the, uh, the government isn't helping here so you know things like that very human things and you need to take that into account. So uh, that is understandable. But if you take the uh, big picture, obviously Poland uh, is a huge ally and uh, I'm happy that the new government uh, is using such clear language and uh, it's it's very important. And even like, look at Slovakia, right? We were talking about Orban earlier, but Slovakia has this Robert Fiso, and he's a very well-known pro-Putin uh, guy. Uh, he's been around forever also, uh, I remember. And, um, well, obviously he was out of office too, but still, he's been around forever. And even he is like, you know, whilst being pro-Putin and pro-Russian, he's still like, when he went to Brussels, he didn't veto anything. He didn't help Orban. He's like, okay, no, I'm out. And this is also one of the reasons probably why uh, if I were to extend sort of, or expand the answer to your earlier question about Orban uh, and um, the punishment is that, well, obviously, if he's extremely toxic, even compared to people like Vito, who isn't that great himself, but Orban is uh, on a completely different level. So, um, and, and that is good. And Slovakia has changed its policy. It's like stopped giving weapons 
uh, I think, to Ukraine. But come on, you also have to be realistic that this is not the amount of weapons that are changing <laughs> anything that much on the battlefield. So, I mean, okay, well, if it makes you happy not to give us weapons, okay, but at least you're not obstructing something in the process of EU integration like Viktor Orban does. Because Viktor Orban obstructs, doesn't give weapons, uh, goes to meet Putin uh, in Beijing, out of all the places, for God's sake, you went to Beijing to uh, meet with Putin, and this is this is the thing, right? So I think that Ukraine has a lot of allies in the in Europe and Europe in general, and the European institutions. That's also very important. Are very pro-Ukrainian. Ursula von der Leyen, Jean Michel. Um, it's great because I'm not so sure that, you know, like I was uh, talking about my internship at the Mission of Ukraine earlier to the European Union, and that was back when Jean-Claude Juncker was around, and he was the president of the European Commission. Jean-Claude Juncker, let's be honest, okay, so uh, this is not something that is going to shock you, but he's a well-known alcoholic, and, <laughs> and it came from different sources, and, and, and obviously several times it happened in public too, and uh, when he went to that NATO summit, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and uh, he, like, you know, he looked a little bit too happy, <laughs> just, a just a tad too happy, so he, were he in power right now, I think it would be much more difficult for Ukraine. But Ursula von der Leyen, she is uh, extremely pro-Ukrainian, and uh, that is uh, like a truly good leader. I wasn't that optimistic about her at the beginning, but then she started to kind of show that she indeed understands the world uh, very well. So on balance, you know, because there's been a lot of despair and not a little panic, actually, in the last couple of weeks, on balance, though, this seems that we've had a more positive than negative conversation in terms of the outlook and the chances of this aid, eventually military aid um, and financial aid being unlocked. Are you going into the new year slightly more optimistic than you are pessimistic in terms of these you know, big aid related decisions? Well, I, I'm going to have to stick to being realistic. So I think it's going to be difficult, maybe not the EU aid. I think that, you know, they'll find a way to appease our favorite toad, uh, maybe not so favorite. And um, they, I, I'm pretty sure about that. However, when it comes to the US, obviously I'm a bit concerned because, well, look, I think that they will pass that package eventually they will i'm even even mike johnson he's he seems at least in public to be delivering the correct messages like somewhat correct by saying that putin won't stop we understand and things like that he could have used a completely different set of words but he does have an understanding and that is already something that's that's good but it does also, uh, you can also tell that for him, the border and everything is very important. So I don't know much about the US border and what went wrong and when. I I really don't know because this is not my area of expertise, but from what I understood, it's the situation got completely out of hand. So if that is the case, 
then indeed you also need to fix that just because it makes sense to protect your country too, right? <laughs> it, it does make sense. And, and you also have to understand that I'm pretty sure that some of those people who come from Mexico are not only people who are looking uh, like for a better livelihood, but also potential Russian agents, Chinese influences, like, you know, a lot of dodgy individuals, mildly put. So that is something that you also need to be concerned about because they come around and then obviously they can disrupt what's going on in the country too, right? In that way. And um, fixing the border is important, but, you know, you need to take into account that while it is important, maybe there are some other things which are even more important, you know? And it's not about Ukraine, it's also about Israel and uh, like the situation in general. So like, you know, the big picture, because you have neo-Nazis, neo-imperialists, fake communists, jihadists, uh, whatnot, running around uh, wanting to put an end to democracy as such that is their like idea that is their goal at the end of the day to put an end to democracy wherever it is is it in the middle east is it in europe is it somewhere else is it in asia they just want to end it and this is something that probably the u.s must realize that it's not just like you know we're not talking about platitudes here it is indeed so so if, uh, you know, like when I look at what's going on in the U.S., also I think about Israel in the sense that they are their partners, right? They are their uh, staunchest allies uh, in, the, in the Middle East and they enjoy all these special security guarantees. And yet even Israel hasn't received the aid it's, it's entitled to from the U.S., like, you know, according to the guarantees. So... Even that country hasn't received anything from them. No, I mean, I mean, they have received some weapons and stuff, uh, obviously, but not the aid, not the sufficient amount of aid. Let's put it that way. So that is a little bit scary that such situations are being held hostage to uh, situations which are also important, but not to that extent right now. <laughs> it can be like you know it can be done a bit later um which i understand in politics is a very vague concept but uh, still i think that if you if you view politics as something very like you know a, a method of solving problems that are extremely important then yeah this is what you should prioritize and then you go back to the issues that are uh, important, but not to that extent. Well, we'll have to see how this pans out. Uh, we are everyone who are in the, you know, pro-Ukraine camp um, uh, hopes that this works its way through. And of course, uh, you know, it's incumbent on people to contact their representatives and not just consume information, but actually take action and try to influence the political process. Uh, and not just election time, but through you know, making calls, writing, trying to get in touch with their representatives. And everything that you're doing, of course, is incredibly important. And Ukrainians um, who are in the diaspora throughout Europe can also bring pressure to bear. Um, Lesia, thank you so much. I'm sure there will be plenty to catch up on uh, in the new year, in the next couple of months, as these events unfold.
Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to the new interviews. Thank you so much.